The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. There are things that people say to you that stay with you. You know, those words come to you on the air like billions of other words, but somehow those particular words just adhere to your memory. I think this was probably about 20 years ago. A friend said to me, I can't think of any reason that I'd give a friend of mine who was unhappy in their marriage to stay. At the time, we were standing outside this wonderful villa on the north coast, having one of those very honest conversations that friends have when you really have the time to kind of swim past the stuff that floats on the surface of your minds and and dive down deep into what you really think and how you really feel. And if I remember correctly, we were there on that particular weekend with a couple of other friends because we were attending the wedding of another friend. And perhaps that would have made his comments ironic, except that that particular marriage ended in divorce maybe a decade later. I remember hearing what he said and feeling this great sense of despair and helplessness. Despair because I recognized that it meant he would have nothing helpful to offer to those he sincerely cared for when they were in crisis. Helplessness, because despite my convictions differing from his, I couldn't in that moment think of a good answer to give him, a reason to give a friend who was miserable in their marriage to stay. And what deepened my despair was that I knew that he was speaking sincerely. He was misguided, but he was merely exhaling the air that we all breathe. He was only shaping the spirit of the age into words. We live in a world that prizes personal happiness over covenantal promises, that values what I want now over what I promised then, a world that is drawn to divorce. What might surprise you, though, is that the world Jesus lived in was strikingly similar. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 10. In verses 1 to 12 of this chapter, Mark tells us about a time when Jesus, as he was teaching the crowds about the kingdom of God, was asked a question about divorce by the Pharisees. They wanted him to weigh in on their debate about when divorce was allowed, and they were hoping that his answer would get him into trouble. But instead, Jesus repurposed the occasion to teach about God's original intent for the permanence of marriage. And to call his disciples to to embrace that intention as the standard for their lives, even though the culture around them was going in a very different direction. Here's what you're going to see in this text. Jesus calls those who follow him to embrace God's original intention for the permanence of marriage amidst a culture drawn to divorce. Jesus preached these truths as he stood among a crowd of people, breathing the divorce-infused air of that day. And he explained them further to his disciples in private. These are hard truths. They were hard to hear then, and they are still hard to hear now. But just as Jesus preached among those people, today I re-speak his word as one who lives with you. 
I'm not standing in some ivory tower of moral superiority, safely sequestered from the carnage going on in the world. It is my joy and my privilege to live as a married man and to labor alongside this family that is Grace Family Church, rejoicing in the hopes of engaged couples and in the everyday blessings of marriage, laboring with those who are struggling in marriage and sitting in the mess of marital disasters that have happened and even those that are happening now as if in slow motion. All of us are in desperate need of Jesus' words here in Mark 10. If we are to resist the corrosive atmosphere around us and the impulses of our own self-destructive and deceptive hearts so that we can live and help others to live to please God. Let's read then from Mark 10, 1 to 12. This is God's holy word given to those he is redeeming from the wreckage of a fallen world. And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. That's heavy, isn't it? Jesus calls those who follow him to embrace God's original intention for the permanence of marriage amidst a culture drawn to divorce. Here's how we're going to make our way through this weighty text. I was calling it two steps, but by the time I was finished writing, it's more like two flights of stairs. So two flights of stairs. Understanding Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce and then reckoning with Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. So in this first flight of stairs, we're going to just take our time walking through this text, trying to understand what is Jesus saying here about marriage and divorce. And then we're going to take those truths and we're going to see how they start to hit our hearts and apply to our situations and what they call us to in terms of posture and response. Before we get moving, I want you to be aware of something. Jesus is not trying to answer all your questions about marriage and divorce in this passage. Jesus didn't even directly answer the question the Pharisees asked. His answer exceeded the scope of their interests and it challenged their sinful hearts. In preaching this sermon, my goal is to be faithful to Mark's authorial intent by putting weight on what Jesus says here rather than trying to dedicate myself to fill all the gaps that seem to appear as, as he teaches us. Mark wants to direct our attention to something that is foundational for those who would follow Jesus. 
So let's begin with understanding Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. This is the kind of passage where there's a gravity pulling us towards the controversial sections. But the context that Mark has included is important. We're going to miss aspects of what he wants us to understand if we pass over those details. Mark tells us where Jesus was. The importance of that detail will become apparent soon. He also tells us who Jesus was with. Jesus was with the crowds again. And our text says in verse 1 that he taught them as was his custom. This means that what Jesus taught about marriage and divorce, up to the end of verse 9, he taught in public. The Pharisees prompted it, but the crowds also heard his reply. Mark has told us previously that Jesus taught the crowds out of compassion for these people who were like sheep without a shepherd, lost and a danger to themselves. So we need to listen to this hard teaching as an expression of his love for us also. Into this context comes a now familiar adversary. Enter the Pharisees, a Jewish sect that was dedicated to the pursuit of righteousness and the purity of Israel. And they are continuing in a familiar pattern. They're not interested in learning from Jesus. They had long made their mind up about him, and they continued to treat him as hostile. They were trying to trip him up with a question related to the interpretation of the law. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? But their question is a strange one. David Garland explains why. Most Jews believed that a man had an inalienable right to divorce a wife. The later debate centered on the proper grounds for divorce, not whether it was lawful. The heart of the contemporary debate, the allowable reasons for divorce, was probably implied in their question. It's explicit in the parallel account in Matthew's Gospel, where the question is, is it lawful to divorce one's wife on any grounds? That's the controversy that the Pharisees wanted to draw Jesus into, perhaps hoping that his answer might discredit him with the crowds. Now, there were two prevailing views on divorce among Pharisees. Mark Strauss explains, The stricter school of Shammai allowed divorce only in the case of adultery, while the more liberal school of Hillel allowed it for almost any reason, even burning a meal. So, how many guesses do I need to give you for you to identify which school was more popular in Jesus' day? Yeah, Hillel, of course. But even with that internal debate, the reality is that both schools treated marriage as a disposable contractual arrangement. And remember that the Pharisees set the tone for all of the other Jews. Everyone saw them as the ones who were serious about pleasing God. But it's also likely that they chose this particular question as a trap because of where they were. Based on what we're told at the start of the passage, this was likely the region of Perea governed by King Herod. You might recall that Herod had, had imprisoned John the Baptist and then killed him eventually. Um, and John, of course, was the prophet who paved the way for Jesus' ministry. John got himself into Herod's bad books by criticizing Herod's divorce and remarriage to Herodias. So Herod took him out of commission, and then eventually John was beheaded. So the Pharisees were probably baiting a trap that they hoped that Jesus would spring with his answer, hoping that the wrath of Herod would rid them of this renegade rabbi. But look at verse 3. Watch Jesus' wisdom at work. Jesus answers their question with a question of his own. 
He's not going to be led into their trap. Pay attention to Jesus' question. What did Moses command you? Jesus was asking them what God's law commanded about divorce. Now, pay attention to their reply. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. What they were doing was summarizing a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. This might surprise you. That passage is the only Old Testament law about divorce. Divorce is talked about in other places and is assumed as a reality. So surely the Pharisees who knew the scriptures had answered well. Here's the problem. Moses did not command anything about divorce in that passage. What I mean is, the law given there does not encourage divorce. It does not specify the circumstances under which divorce is allowable. It does not permit divorce. It assumes divorce and regulates what can happen subsequently. A Jewish man could divorce his wife simply by writing her a certificate of divorce and sending her away. The law in question prohibited a man from remarrying his former wife after having divorced her and she had married someone else. Commentators speculate about a number of potential reasons for this prohibition, but all of them surround discouraging divorce and protecting women from the accusations or exploitation of their former husbands. This is the law that the Pharisees claimed as permission to divorce. In answering Jesus' questions, they had shown their hand, or rather they had shown their hearts. Strauss points out, by referring to what Moses permitted the Pharisees are looking for loopholes, what they can do and still stay within the legal limits of the law. But the law is there, isn't it? One might argue. If, God, if God's law assumes divorce and governs the fallout, doesn't that mean that God allows divorce? Wouldn't that make it okay? But here's the problem with that line of argument. True disciples don't look for loopholes. We live to please God. We don't try to figure out what we can get away with. We try to discern what pleases God. R.C. Sproul captures the heart of discipleship well. The great overarching goal of the Christian life is obedience to the king. And he is pleased when we obey. Now let's pay attention to Jesus' reply. And as you listen to Jesus this morning, I want to point you back a little bit in Mark to the transfiguration. And to, to, I want you to bear in mind the heavenly affirmation that came in that moment. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus can tell us why a law exists. He can speak authoritatively to God's intent. The best the Pharisees can do is read the law and try to figure out how to apply it. But sinful hearts are prone to reading God's law in entirely the wrong way. Look at what he says to them in verse 5. Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. What Jesus is saying was that the intent of that law was sin management. It existed not to express God's desire, but to mitigate against the effects of sinful desires, willful rebellion against God. He says, your hardness of heart, not their hardness of heart, as if the problem died with their forefathers in the desert. Here's why this matters, and David Garland frames this really well. If Mosaic legislation on divorce 
is rooted in human hardness of heart. That is, stubborn rebelliousness against God's will. It cannot reflect God's will. Moses' legislation regarding the certificate of divorce may be legally recognized, but it does not reflect, reflect God's purpose for marriage. This law is a concession to the fallen world of humanity. Their permissive view of divorce grew from the soil of their rebellious hearts. Hearts that did not understand God's purpose for marriage in the first place. And this is very important for us to understand. And not just conceptually, but at a convictional level. In our world where the current is flowing swiftly in the direction of abandoning difficult or unhappy marriages, we stand no chance of thinking how God does about divorce if we do not understand his original intention for marriage. So what then is God's purpose for marriage? Jesus now points them exactly to that, to God's will for marriage. I want to read verses 6 to 8 again. The beating heart of this text is right here. Now, before studying this text, I thought it was a text about divorce, but it isn't really. It does have massive implications for how we think about divorce, but you will not even be able to hear those if you don't hear what it's saying about marriage. So what does Jesus say about marriage? So look in your Bibles with me at verses 6 to 8. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. There's a lot that Jesus is saying right here in two quotations from Genesis and his own comment. I want to pull on a few threads. Jesus points them to the beginning, to the creation account, quoting from Genesis 1.27 and 2.24. Marriage was in God's mind from the very beginning. In fact, God made human beings with marriage in mind. Here, you'll find the world as it should be, and marriage as it should be. No sin management required. And think about this, and think about this teaching in the wider context of this gospel. If Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God, enacting God's plan to rescue his creation and to restore what was broken, then doesn't it make perfect sense that the citizens of that kingdom, those in whom the kingdom is already being manifest, should be governed by God's original intention for marriage? God made marriage. It's his idea. It's his creation. This is biblical anthropology. You cannot know this by unearthing ancient villages and studying extinct cultures. God is telling us what we need to know and what we cannot know apart from his revealing it. Marriage was not our idea. It's not a social construct. It was dis divinely designed. It is for us, but not from us. And just as human beings were made to reflect the glory of God, marriage too was made to be an image of his excellencies. But here's another tremendously important thread. God makes marriage. He didn't just come up with the design. He's an active participant in every marriage. The two become one flesh because God joins them together. That's what Jesus makes clear in verse 9. In marriage, we commit and God creates. He creates a mysterious one flesh union between a man and a woman. 
In every marriage, there are more than two interested parties. God is invested in every marriage. The significance of the one flesh union is highlighted in Jesus' comment in the second part of verse 8. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. God makes marriage permanent. This is a facet of marriage that's accented in Jesus' answer. So imagine for a moment some children playing and two of them standing together arm in arm in front of another and they make vows and the other pronounces them married. Well, that would just be a game. Nothing would have changed. In fact, they could very well decide to play the same game that same afternoon with two other children. You know, they just decide they're going to marry somebody else and they pronounce them again. But when a man and a woman marry according to the laws of the land, something fundamental has changed. They are no longer two, but one flesh. God's intention is that the only thing that should separate them is death. That's why we promise what we do. Till death, us do part. Now Jesus focuses these truths and takes aim at our rebellious hearts with one earth-shattering pronouncement on divorce. Look at verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Mic drop. Chaos ensues. I mean, don't you feel the chaos rising in your own heart? Maybe a suffocating bewilderment, if not the immediate desire to take all your toys and throw them outside of the crib? Isn't protest forming in your mind and on your lips? Don't you immediately want relief, a way of escaping such a dogmatic statement? None of the commentators I read offered even a smidgen of relief. This is James Edwards. According to the plain sense of 10, 1 to 12, Jesus does not allow grounds for divorce. If that sticks in your throat, it clearly wasn't going on easily for the disciples either. Look at verse 10. I'm sure they could barely wait to get back to the house to ask Jesus about this teaching. Remember, they were products of their culture. They thought about divorce the way everyone else did. But when they asked Jesus, and they probably tried to politely ask him what he meant because he could not have meant what they thought he meant, he pushed the implications of God's original intention for marriage even further. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, Jesus isn't suddenly issuing ethical instructions about remarriage. He's working out the implications of what he's already said. If God makes marriage permanent, and if his arm is not twisted by or saying, even legally, that a marriage has ended, then remarriage after such a divorce is the equivalent to adultery against your former spouse. If you go to the Registrar General's department, not far from here, there are records of marriages and divorces that, in this country that go back decade after decade. Jesus is saying that because God holds his original intention for marriage as binding, there are discrepancies between his records and ours. And he holds us accountable for those discrepancies. Now, if you're struggling with what Jesus teaches here about marriage and divorce, I would understand David Garland makes this comment about this passage. God's will invades all areas of life, including what is culturally accepted and legally allowed. 
So if our lives are going to be shaped by God's will, we need to turn our attention to reckoning with Jesus' teaching. So that's what we're going to do. Basically, for the rest of this sermon, we're going to reckon with Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. Maybe let's take a little break from us and look at the disciples. It's a good time for that, isn't it? (laughs) It's interesting as we focus on reckoning with Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce to observe the initial response of his own disciples. Matthew 19.10 records their response. His disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. I love how real the Bible is. In the face of Jesus' unyielding teaching about marriage, that's certainly an understandable overreaction, isn't it? What's hilarious is that it was almost certain that all of them would have been married. What's fascinating is that Jesus' response to their pronouncement was to say, basically, that's true, but only for those who have been given the gift of singleness. In other words, there's no way around reckoning with the demands and difficulties of marriage. I won't be focusing on singleness this morning. I think we have made efforts to affirm the goodness of singleness in the past, and we're going to continue to do so, God willing. And we're convinced that Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce is given for your benefit also. Having strong convictions about marriage will help you to be a blessing to others in Christian community, even if you're not contemplating marriage for yourself. Let's launch into our own reckoning with the disciples' words. If the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, then what? I'm going to be leaning heavily on a number of authors who are helping me to reckon with Jesus' teaching. So I'm going to quote a few of them for you. Actually, I'm going to quote several of them for you. Perhaps at this point, the first thing we ought to reckon with is what's not here, what's not in our passage in Mark, an exception clause. If you know your Bibles, you know that it does speak to groans for divorce. Jesus himself gives an exception in Matthew 19. The Apostle Paul affirms Jesus' teaching on marriage, and in speaking to a particular situation being faced by the Corinthians, he adds another exception in 1 Corinthians 7. Instead of explaining these myself, I'm going to lean on Tim and Kathy Keller's comment in their book, The Meaning of Marriage. Uh, They have a wonderful chapter called The Essence of Marriage, which I strongly recommend. I strongly recommend the whole book, but if you're only going to read one chapter, I really recommend that chapter. They do some tremendous work there. And in that chapter, they frame this as well as I could and much more briefly than I can. Sometimes human hearts become so hard because of sin that it leads a spouse into a severe violation of the covenant without prospects of repentance and healing. And in such cases, divorce is permitted. The only such violation that Jesus names is in this passage, speaking, to, speaking of Matthew 19, only such violation that Jesus names is adultery. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul adds another ground, namely willful desertion. These actions essentially break the covenant vow so thoroughly that as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.15, the wronged spouse is not bound. These, adultery and willful desertion by an unbelieving spouse, are the only explicit circumstances under which God permits divorce. That, of course, raises serious questions about other situations. One of those situations is just on our radar these days a lot, which is domestic violence. Uh, And it's beyond the scope of 
this sermon for me to deal with that thoroughly. Maybe we can talk about it in the Q&A if people have questions there. But the pertinent question for this passage is why has Mark chosen to preach Jesus' teaching on marriage without mentioning any exceptions? I think the context of this passage in Mark gives us our biggest clue. Since Mark chapter 8, Jesus has been focused on teaching his disciples what it looks like to follow a king like him. He's taught them that following him involves a non-negotiable call to say no to ourselves and yes to him. No, he's showing us the way that that call affects the realm of marriage. And as he does so, he doesn't even want us thinking about how to land the plane if it's bursting into flames, to borrow an illustration from Edwards. He wants us to hear the daunting cost of discipleship. He wants us to feel the weight of this call. He wants us focused on the path to pleasing him. Other parts of scriptures help us to deal with the what-ifs that arise in a fallen world. But right here, Mark gives us Jesus powerfully commending God's original intention for the permanence of marriage so that we will set our hearts to live in the good of his commands. The exceptions should be exceptional. This should be the norm. This is Jesus redeeming marriage. And because that's the case... One of the things we need to reckon with is the redemptive nature of Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. Now, there's some direct implications that what Jesus said had for the culture of his day. Uh, I was going to get into that, but for the sake of time, I might save those. And if people have questions about that, uh, I'll I'll deal with that in the Q&A. But the bottom line is Jesus starts to reshape the concept of marriage and rehabilitate it back to the original. And it starts to mitigate against many of the ways their culture was broken uh, in, in ways that marriage privileged men and put women in situations where they, were, where, where they had no control and they had no refuge. But as I say, I, I can get into that some more in Q&A if that would serve you. What I want to do is just talk about how reckoning with the redemptive nature of Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce confronts us today. And there's so much here that's confronting our culture. We live in a world where the tendency is to give up on marriages when they become difficult or continue to be difficult or simply if we're not finding them fulfilling. We're already wired for selfishness. And we think that marriage is about us. And the world tells us that we have a sovereign right to end our marriages, to discard the vows that we have made, if that becomes necessary in our own estimation. It should be abundantly clear to us, just by looking at the world around us, looking at relationships that we know about, looking at what what they're saying statistically, that the freedom with which people exit marriages is doing tremendous damage to us, to our children, and to our society at large. Jesus wants us to understand that marriage is from God and is about him. And to live under his rule means to learn a new definition of love and to reject the permission our culture and our laws give, up, give us to give up and walk away and to say yes instead to the permanence of marriage. There are still people who embrace the permanence of marriage and that group is not limited to Christians. But... Uh, uh, A significant number of those who embrace the permanence of marriage disbelieve the goodness of it. So it becomes to them and appears to the world as if they are prisoners to their consciences and to their spouses. And Jesus confronts our resignation with the goodness of God's design. 
That's part of what we're going to see when we reckon with the implications of Jesus' teaching for our understanding of marriage and divorce. So let's dive right into that. If God made us with marriage in mind, and Jesus calls us back to God's original intention for marriage, it means that marriage, as God designed it, is meant to be a blessing to us and to others, despite the fact that we are sinners living in a fallen world. We are broken, but marriage is still good. It turns out that God didn't just design marriage with an ideal world in mind. He designed it as a venue for following Jesus and a theater for his redemptive work in our lives. His path of embracing suffering which leads to glory is the pattern for our marriages too. Paul David Tripp writes this in What Did You Expect? His book on marriage. Marriage is a beautiful thing that only reaches what it was designed to be through the methodology of a painful process. Isn't that precisely the shape of the discipleship that Jesus has been calling us to though? A path through suffering that leads to glory? Denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him? Choosing to lose our lives in order to find them? To love by taking last place and serving others? And it's often in marriage, the place where we expect immediate and sustained happiness, that our hard hearts are most exposed. Trip points out, and I, I strongly recommend Trip's book to you. Also, it's an easier read than Keller. So if you find Keller a little highbrow, Trip is really good and a lot of good examples, a lot of case studies. So Trip points out, our problem is that we don't like difficulty of any kind. We hate pain and despise suffering. There are many of us who would rather have an easy life than a God-honoring one. So before we even battle with one another, we are actually battling the Lord. Our desire to avoid suffering and seek immediate comfort and being conditioned by a culture drawn to divorce is a dangerous cocktail. That's especially true because it's the permanence of marriage that facilitates its sanctifying power. Tim and Kathy Keller help us to see how this works. First, they clarify the nature of the promises we make when we get married. Wedding vows are not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. In a wedding, you stand up before God, your family, and all the main institutions of society, and you promise to be loving, faithful, and true to the other person in the future, regardless of undulating internal feelings or external circumstances. Yeah, oh my. <laughs> they go on to say this. Vows keep you from simply running out too quickly. They give love a chance and create stability so that the feelings of love, always very fitful and fragile in the early months and years, can grow strong and deep over time. They enable your passion to grow in breadth and depth because they give us the security necessary to open our hearts and speak vulnerably and truthfully without being afraid that our partner will simply walk away. That means that marriage is fueled by commitment, not compatibility. Commitment is the garden in which real love grows. 
What all of this is calling us to is to learn to value, invest in, and protect our marriages as couples and as a Christian community. Embracing God's original intention for the permanence of marriage must look like treasuring and nurturing our marriages. Frank Matera reminds us, Disciples do not live as isolated individuals, but as members of the new community which Jesus has established, the church. That means we have to stop treating our marriages as if they are private spaces, for, and in those spaces we struggle or suffer in silence. We need to learn to wisely, deliberately, and determinedly bring others into our marriages. As spouses, we need to do more than give our spouse permission to share with others. We should implore them to do so, even when there's no crisis being worked through. It's in our own best interests. See, I need other men, and Sam and I need other couples in our lives. Other people need to know how I'm thinking about marriage, the ways I'm thinking about my wife, the ways I'm responding to her. They need to know how I'm growing in communicating love. They need to know what our arguments look like. I know too many situations where when you finally get a peek under the hood, you realize that the the arguments going on in a marriage have been abusive. And it's just been continuing and nobody knows because you simply say to yourself, yeah, we had an argument, you know. Oh, you did? Okay. How did you guys work it out? That time, things are fly across the room. And that's not how we're called to live. Other people need to know how I behave when I'm discouraged. They need to know when I'm running from my wife rather than running towards her. You see, I need perspective. I need help. I need suggestions and I need others to challenge me to walk out discipleship in marriage. And we need to grow as a local church in caring for marriages. A part of that is this kind of instruction and other settings for instruction. Another part of that is practical support and just friendship in the journey. Sometimes inviting a couple over for dinner or taking them out can be such a tremendous blessing. Babysitting or a play date can be a massive means of grace. I want to honor Sean and Ruthie for the role they play in taking the lead in this community in caring for marriages. That's been expressed greatly in premarital counseling and also they have a practice of connecting with couples around their anniversary. Thank you guys for the ways you're serving us and strengthening all of us. We also provide couples, uh, counseling for couples as needed and counseling for anybody really as needed. But we do this both informally in many interactions and conversations, but also formally. I've taken the lead in this area. Uh, We see our primary responsibility as being to serve our members, uh, but where we're able, we're also serving others who are close to this community. Think about how what Jesus says about marriage shapes courtship. Now, it should go without saying that it shapes the kind of person who you should be looking for. I mean, we're going to take attraction for granted because that's just normal in our culture. But if you're committed to following Jesus, and if marriage is discipleship, then you need to be looking for someone who you can follow Jesus with. You want to be as sure as you can that they are committed to God's intention for marriage and committed to glorifying Jesus in it because any way you look at it, you will be. You want to pay attention to how they respond to conviction and the need for repentance because if they're not repenting when you're dating, don't expect they're going to suddenly start when you get married. If they never admit sin against you, no. What do you think is going to happen when you get married? 
So really, courtship should be filled with asking each other really hard questions about who you are and how you think and what you value and what you think would break you in half. Now, none of this guarantees the success of marriage, but what it does is it expresses convictions that please God in a way that makes perfect sense. The last thing we need to do is to reckon with the grace of Jesus for our failures in marriage. You see, Jesus didn't just come and drop this heavy teaching about God's original intention for marriage on us so that it would crush us. He came to lay his life down as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, including all our sins against marriage, in marriage, and in ending marriages. What this means is that we can embrace what he's teaching. We can say, God, you are right, and acknowledge the ways in which it calls us to repentance. One of the ways that I've been challenged personally as I was preparing this message, just thinking about this this week, is my failure to consistently invest in the growth of my marriage. It really is very easy to get caught up in the urgent need, which is parenting. Parenting literally cries at you, you know, (laughs) day after day. It, you know, literally, you know, and in, and in the urgent needs around pastoring and to just kind of leave marriage on autopilot, you know, but God was challenging me that, no, you just, you have to keep your hand to the plow. You have to take his call seriously and express that in ways that are tangible. I also think that as elders, we need to look carefully at how, we are, how we've been communicating our convictions on marriage to those joining GFC. Now, we've, we've spoken about it. We've documented some, some things in our membership manual. But I realize making things clear as people are joining uh, puts us in a better position to serve everyone. And surprises in this area do not help anyone. If you are listening to this message and you are contemplating a divorce for unbiblical reasons... I want to implore you to reconsider. There's nothing better for your life than God's will. I hope that what you felt this morning is Jesus standing in your way, blocking the exit that you've been considering. And I pray that you will not run from him or try to get around him, but collapse into his arms of compassion. Please seek counsel from someone whose convictions have been shaped, not by the culture, but by God's word. You see, what Jesus is teaching on marriage means is that every divorce is a tragedy. Every divorce is the result of someone's sin. The Kellers point us to the right perspective and posture on this. Divorce should not be easy. It should not be our first, second, third, or fourth resort. And yet Jesus knows the depth of human sin. And holds out hope for those who find themselves married to someone with an intractably hard heart. Who has broken his or her vow in these ways. Divorce is terribly difficult. And it should be. But the wronged party should not live in shame. That's something we want to affirm greatly. Because sometimes what happens is when people go through a divorce, the church just kind of looks down on them. Without considering the circumstances. Which also means the church was separate from the process, which should never be. A part of why we have communities, so that we walk through crisis together. And when your feelings are firing in a certain way, you have people around you who you trust, who have proven their love for you, who can come alongside you and say, no, here's the path, walk in it, and we're going to hold your hand. But Jesus calls us to extend particular grace and protection to the party who has been sinned against in the case of divorce. 
And he calls us to extend grace even to the party who is responsible for the wrong, to call them to repentance and to restore them when they repent. There's another conversation that's etched in my mind. One afternoon during my pastoral internship, I kind of stepped out of a small side office into the main area of what was a pretty small office for, for the church I was serving with. And I ran into Tim, who is a senior pastor of that church. And Tim that day, looked, that afternoon, he looked visibly tired. I knew that he had just finished a counseling session with a lady who attended the church. She was a black American who looked to me like she was in her mid to late 50s. I knew that she was married, but I'd never met her husband because he didn't come to church. I asked him how the session went, and he sighed, and he just explained to me that it was rough. Without going into detail, that wasn't my business, he explained that her marriage was a really hard place and had been that way for a really long time. I started to feel a similar sense of despair and helplessness as I did listening to my friends, to my friends speak so many years before. But he looked at me as if fixing his eyes on something precious, shining in the gloom, and said, but she hasn't quit. Her costly determination and his deliberate celebration of that fact continue to help me to understand who Jesus calls us to be. Jesus calls those who follow him to embrace God's original intention for the permanence of marriage amidst a culture drawn to divorce. God made marriage, and God makes marriage permanent. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. James Edwards challenges us. The question in our day of impermanent commitments and casual divorce is whether we as Christians will hear the unique call of Christ to discipleship in marriage. In marriage as in other areas to which Christ... Sorry, in marriage, as in other areas to which the call of Christ applies, will we seek relief in what is permitted or commit ourselves to what is intended by God and commanded by Christ? Will we fall away in trouble and difficulty or follow Jesus in the costly journey of discipleship, even in marriage? We have been called to follow him on the path of self-denial and to reject the path of self-gratification. We've been called to tell the gospel story of forgiveness and reconciliation and unfailing love in our marriages. And even when we have failed and experienced the tragedy of divorce, even if you have been abandoned by your spouse or have abandoned your spouse, you can experience and live each day in the freedom that comes with repentance. God's grace is such that even confession of our sins and shortcomings magnifies his wisdom and love displayed in the gift of marriage. The same one who called us back to God's original intention for marriage, went to the cross and died for every one of our sins against marriage in attitude, word, and action. He has atoned for all of our transgressions. Our hope and our salvation is not found in how well we obey. It's found in how well He obeyed. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.